Jeff would later call switching to narratives. It was one of the best moves that Amazon has ever made. Doesn't use those words lightly, by the way. It's just gave us a powerful competitive advantage. It gave us a deeper insights into customer behavior and ultimately without additional investment in time allowed us to make better decisions. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Tropical MBA podcast. Thanks for choosing us. We have an incredible Q4 in store for you here at the show, so keep tuning in. Y'all know today's topic is one of my favorite books of the year. Y'all know I'm super into books. I read all different kinds of topics, and very often, one of the most disappointing topics out there is business books. So I'm always really excited when a book not only captivates my attention, but gets me taking action and thinking differently. And often I'll have to go through many, many business books before I find one that does. And today's book, you can get a primer by listening to today's episode. It's called Working Backwards, and it's co-authored by Colin Breyer and Bill Carr. Now, these guys joined Amazon in the late 90s, and their time in the company covered a period of incredible innovation. Think Kindle, Amazon Prime, Amazon Echo and Alexa, and Amazon Web Services. And Colin, who will join me today, as you'll find out, worked directly with Jeff Bezos, who has a ton of insights. So what this book does so well is dig deep into the principles and practices that drove Amazon's incredible, and it seemed like from the outside observers, unlikely success. Many of their principles turn what seems like common wisdom about companies and inverts them, much like, say, former guest of the show Ricardo Semler did back in the 1980s, and we'll link to the episode I did with him. So the following conversation with Colin Breyer is just a snapshot really into some of the principles of Amazon's leadership practices and how those with businesses like ours, maybe you have revenue of under $5 million, might start to think about how to apply some of them. I started at Amazon in March of 1998. So at that time, the corporate area of Amazon was 100 people, probably a little bit less. I started off in the product development group. We could all get cozily into one conference room to figure out what are we going to build next this coming month. And uh, we were just selling books and we had two warehouses of fulfillment centers, which were really just big rooms with bookshelves. And then the total company was about 500 people, including the people in the warehouses and customer service. Amazon was about $150 million in revenue at that time when I joined. So I spent 12 years there in a number of different roles. We were growing so fast, it was effectively a different company every 12 to 18 months. I ended up running our affiliate business, which we were one of the first people to figure out affiliate marketing and made a lot of mistakes along the way. But how do you scale from, yeah, you know, we got up to upwards of over a million affiliate websites that we were dealing with. And I spent two years working with Jeff Bezos as his technical advisor or chief of staff, or internally they call it the shadow 
from three <laughs> Jeff Shadow to 2003 to 2005. It was a really interesting time. I was very lucky to have uh, been in that role and been in the role at that time because Amazon was at an inflection point. And we were taking these ideas that a lot of people didn't think we should do or that were just ideas on a whiteboard or an email, which would become Amazon Prime, Kindle, AWS, fulfillment by Amazon. So we talk about how we took those from ideas to become very large businesses. But the other part is a story that really wasn't told was Jeff Bezos put a lot of time and in focus internally to figure out what types of processes do we need to implement inside Amazon so we can scale and just have the power of a company at scale, but the nimbleness of a startup. And so that's where some we developed some of these processes over the course of those couple of years where I was working with Jeff that are still around today. And that's what we wrote this book about was to tell the story, not only of how they developed, but explain them in a way where people could study them and have enough information to go implement them in their organization should they so choose to. You mentioned you had a frustration about how people would view Amazon from the outside. And yet you guys were even baffling some of the greatest companies in the world. They were looking at Amazon saying, I don't know how they're doing this or why even. What were the intellectual seeds of these principles? They're communicated so forcefully and so confidently, yet they seem without precedent. They seem to arise out of nowhere. Some of these processes were a direct response to challenges we were having at a particular time. And they're also challenges that every growing organization faces. How do you hire people and retain a high hiring bar? How do you organize into teams? And as you add more people, your velocity increases versus slows down. That's not going to drag you down. How you communicate and make decisions. You know, we were all, as I mentioned, we could all get in a room to say, what are we going to do next? You can't do that at any reasonable size. So we had to figure out how do we make decisions? How do you measure things? We had a lot of analysts and pundits saying, here's how Amazon should be measured, but we felt we had a different way of how we could measure businesses, both small and large. So face the same questions that and challenges that any growing organization faces, but in some cases came up with radically different solutions. And if I'd answer why you peel back one layer, it was Amazon's leadership principles. We did not compromise from those while we were coming up with the processes just to solve the challenges. When you look at customer obsession, the ownership and long-term thinking, invention, and operational excellence. You know, there are several leadership principles like dive deep in there. When you stick with those concepts and do not compromise on those, you come up with different solutions to how do you grow, how do you hire, how do you measure your organizations and than a lot of other companies did. So that's, you know, it's no secret how Amazon got there. It's just that we didn't compromise. And that's hard, by the way. It's hard to do when things aren't going well. And it's just as hard when things are going well. You need to really stick to your roots and be a customer-obsessed, you know, long-term thinking company. And that's going to dive deep. So that, that's how the processes, I think, are quite different than a lot of other organizations. I find a lot of small organizations, they tend to put work relationships over maybe customer obsession or the principles of the business. And that's part of the promise of your book, I think. There's a kind of... Um, a ruthlessness, that was a word I might use, like that I imagine a more serious organization operating with that is committed to customers and principles that allows them to make what I would think is a very hard decision. Like say you have a, someone who's not performing particularly well or a leader whose time has elapsed. I'm assuming that 
these decisions were easier for you because you had these principles and these obsessions. Is that a fair assumption? Or? Well, the lens through which we evaluated ourselves, our peers, our managers, direct reports, it was all through those leadership principles. So during those reviews, or even if you're take a, like a postmortem on how something went, you often would ask, well, when did I exhibit the Amazon leadership principles and when did I fall short? So I can do more of the former and less of the latter. It was as much of a data-driven exercise for that. And so you could see some people, you know, the leadership principles define how we make the tough decisions. And that's a way of thinking and uh, so we can have consistency throughout the company. But it's not for everyone, but it's not the only way to build a great company either. But it's just the way that Amazon chose. So it's a very strong culture. So it's self-selecting in a way. Sometimes people come to Amazon and realize, hey, this isn't for me. Ideally, you would detect that in the interview process, but nothing's perfect. So some gets through. But it was easier in a way just because we had something concrete to fall back on. People would either self-select or say, yeah, I didn't follow this principle here, so I'm going to get better tomorrow. It's a lesson learned and I'm going to go figure out how to do better on the next project. There's so many ideas in the book that are like so adjacent to what we already do, but it's just completely reversed. And I think it's, that's what is so revelatory about it. And I want to bring up a few to you and get your reaction. The first is I can obsess about my competition. What does it mean to obsess about my customers instead? And what might change about my behaviors or my decisions? And Maybe even you could illustrate an example. Yeah, well, for one thing, at Amazon, I've been gone from Amazon for a while. Sometimes I still slip into the we. We do pay attention to competitors in certain areas, but being customer obsessed, like one example is if you were to look at the weekly business review deck for that the retail business, probably about 75, you know, 70, 80% of the metrics directly measure the customer experience. Because the customer experience and a what's good for shareholders in the long run, it's the same thing measured differently. So we wanted to know, do we have the right for the retail business? Do we have the right products? Are they in stock? Are they priced appropriately? Can we get them to customers? What are customers complaining about? Where did we let customers down? How are we doing at reducing you know, defects per order or missed promises? We would dive deep into all of that because we felt that if you continually improve the customer experience, you're going to have a good business. And we tried to pick durable customer needs. For instance, if you work on lowering your cost structure so you can lower prices, you do that today, it's going to pay dividends next year, five years, 10 years down the road. So it was just a relentless focus year in and year out, quarter in and quarter out on how to spin Amazon's flywheel faster. In one respect, it's actually kind of boring, you know, just to spin the flywheel faster. But within that context of spinning the what flywheel... What does it mean to spin the flywheel faster? So Amazon has a flywheel, tip of the hat to Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great. That's where at Amazon we learned about the flywheel. He you know, taught us the concept. So it's not an Amazon invention. We've learned it from Jim. We identified the elements of the flywheel that if you do consistently do these things, the flywheel is going to spin faster and faster. So that it has selection, traffic, customer experience, you know, large part of it is click to deliver time, the number of sellers on the marketplace. And as you work to increase all of the metrics on that flywheel, 
it doesn't move much faster with any individual effort. But collectively, when you do it over and over again, two, five, 10 years later, it's now we can deliver things and it's faster than actually going to the store. I can order something and it comes to my house. So that was a pipe dream 10, 15 years ago, but it was something that we knew we could get there. We just had to keep working on a bunch of different things. So that's the power of the flywheel. The last thing about being competitor obsessed, you then seed your strategy in that case to your competitors. Because if they change their strategy and you have no knowledge of it, your strategy is based on what competitors are doing. You have to be pretty good at close following and be able to pivot pretty quickly. We felt that our strategy was identifying durable customer needs. And we can work on that despite what's happening on the outside or what pundits or analysts or competitors are saying we should or shouldn't do. That's another thing that we didn't have to change our strategy every couple of years as competitors change their strategy. That's really interesting. One of the things that led me to you is this concept of a right first culture. There was a press release that came out about Amazon has a writing first culture. And I, that's how I found my way into working backwards. Can you describe what it is and why it ended up being important? Yeah, how it started, it was actually in June of 2004. And we would have a four-hour staff meeting every Tuesday where teams would come in to present to the S team, which is Amazon's senior leadership team. You know, updates on the business, decisions that we needed to make, any important topics. And we did at that time what every other company did. They used slides to present. And as Amazon was growing, the stakes were getting higher. The decisions were more complicated to study. Consequences of getting them right or wrong were also higher. And the meetings just were, they weren't going well. A very few teams made it through their presentation, getting being pinged with questions. And so Jeff and I had been studying ways to make the meeting better. And, you know, we came across a, a work by Edward Tufty, who is a big fan of using narratives and sentences and paragraphs aren't really a, a new invention, but most of the business kind of forgot about using that to talk about and, and make decisions around complex topics. So Jeff, one day after painful S team meeting said, sorry, next week, we're going to switch to using narratives and no exceptions. And there are a couple of things that were notable about it. One, it was a rip the band-aid approach. We had been trying slides, been doing formats, you know, rules on how you could and couldn't do. It wasn't working. So we wanted to try something radically different. But the other one is like, it wasn't a rash decision and it was a reversible decision. If it didn't, would do well six weeks later, we could have gone back to slides. So, about type two decision, as you put it. Yes. Two way door, two way door. Yeah. We one way door and two way doors. An amazing thing happened. So, first of all, the couple of narratives we struggled along a bit, but we realized a couple of things. One is that the ideas were really floating to the top. It wasn't the presentation itself, the charisma of the presenter. Customers don't care about any of that. They care about is the organization making the right decisions that make my life as a customer better? So we found that ideas popped up. The clarity of thought was much higher because writing a narrative, it's, it's harder than throwing together some slides. Presenting team or the writing team has to get their cohesive thought in a narrative. You can't hide in sentences and paragraphs. And when you put your argument together, the, just the overall density of information was about 20 times higher due to pixel density, a few other things. So for that same you know, one-hour session, we would get 20 times more information. And so we felt we would 
make higher quality decisions. So we weren't investing any more time in the, the staff meeting. We were just getting a lot more information and making higher quality decisions. An example of a good process that you try inside a company is, you know, that's just started to spread outside of Jeff's staff meeting. Other groups would start using narratives. And so it wasn't mandated at first that we're going to ban slides for any decision-making, but every group just learned that this is a better way for you know, me as a manager or us as a team to make higher quality decisions. So let's use narratives instead of slides when we're looking at data in order to make decisions. So that's how it started. Jeff would later call switching to narratives. It was one of the best moves that Amazon has ever made. Does it use those words lightly, by the way? You know, it gave us a powerful competitive advantage. It gave us a deeper insights into customer behavior. And ultimately, without additional investment in time, allowed us to make better decisions. It's a stunning illustration in the book. These, some of the best business minds in America sitting silently around a table for 20 minutes reading. And so actually reading these, what you call six pagers or what Amazon calls six pagers, was part of the culture or is part of the culture. And then for 40 minutes, you discuss. One is tempted to think if you haven't gone through this process that, well, can't you perhaps tell a narrative that is maybe not the charisma isn't there because we're not performing it, but is optimistic or weaves a yarn or is really interesting or why can't I game this system? Even when you say the word narrative, the first thing I thought in my head is, well, where's the numbers? Where's the... Where's the chart? Maybe I can just tell a story that sounds really good, but ultimately isn't accurate. Narratives, to be clear, they can have charts and tables and they can have the you know appendices with that. But really, where narratives shine, it's the clarity of thought. It's not the flowery prose. And it's also incumbent upon the readers of these narratives and the leaders in the room to say, it's not about selling an idea. So it's a different focus. It's about uncovering the truth of the idea to determine what is the next course. Uh, so when someone has a great idea, a lot of other organizations we've seen, they're just trying to sell their manager, the CEO, this is a great idea, can I get funding to go do it? You're not at that stage yet when you've come up with an idea. You want experienced, talented individuals who can pattern match and kick the tires and say, here's where this idea can be better. Here are some weak spots to go address. This part is great. Go explore it more. It's really cheap to do in a narrative. So a lot of these uh, processes are iterative and it's cheap to write a narrative than have another meeting. Uh, a good chunk of my day as a leader at Amazon was reading PR FAQ narratives and looking at data. Well, this is our press release, press release FAQ. Yes, press release and FAQ. Can you describe that as briefly? Yeah, it's a, it's a type of narrative. It's a process called working backwards. So the title of our book is working backwards, but it's working backwards is a specific named process at Amazon. And that's the process that you use to take an idea and bet it and decide whether to green light, you know, to move forward with the idea. The tool that you use in that process is a type of narrative called the PRFAQ document, short for press release and frequently asked questions. And so whenever someone has an idea, you say, great, go write a PRFAQ document. And the first thing you do is write the press release. It has to be one page. It has to really crisply address and answer the question about who is the customer for this idea? What is the customer problem we're trying to solve? What is our solution? 
And then can we reasonably convince ourselves that customers will change their behavior to adopt what we were proposing to build? And so this is what I was mentioning earlier. You're not trying to sell that to people right now. You're, you're trying to say, have we identified the right customer set? Is this a problem that's worth solving? Is this solution good enough? And will customers care? And that's the truth-seeking mindset, which is different from, this is great, we should go do it. If we need 30 people to go, go do this. I mean, there's time for that later once you have the idea. But we found that slowing down and really obsessing over those issues, it really increases the overall velocity because you're doing less zigging and zagging. Because you'll with the PRFAQ, you start from the customer experience and you work backwards from that. So you're moving in a straight line to where you need to go. So there's a difference between speed and velocity. You know, speed can be a hundred kilometers an hour, but you could be going in any direction and velocity has that directional component. So that a good chunk of the working backwards PRFAQ approach is to make sure you get that directional component of velocity correct. Then you can march and move fast in the direction that you need to go. Another element that you spoke about is relative to velocity is single threaded leadership. Say I, you know, write my six pager. I truly believe that I've got an initiative in the company that can make a difference. The S team agrees with me. I walk out and essentially now I'm going to be a single threaded leader within Amazon. What does that mean? A single threaded leader, it's an attribute. So it's not a job title, a role. And we found that for most projects that were either struggling or that we were not doing effectively, we would ask, who is the senior most person in the room working on this idea and nothing but? So you're working on it full time. Do they have the organizational skills and capability to make this idea a reality? And the third one is, do they have control over the necessary resources to get this job done? The control doesn't mean everyone has to report to them because it can work in a matrix organization. But single-threaded leadership, quite simply, is you, either, you have it if you have the named person for the first question and yes and a yes is the answer to the last two. You don't have it if there's any other answers to those three questions. In a nutshell, that's what single-threaded leadership was. And we just found that when projects were, were struggling, when we would go through, we would ask those questions and we didn't have a single-threaded leader or the person we had. If you're looking to build a billion-dollar business and the only one working on it full-time is a junior product manager right out of school, chances are it's not going to be a billion-dollar business. At Amazon, we would often put very senior leaders on ideas, you know, running large teams and say, you're now working on this idea. It could be very big, but go hire the team. <laughs> like, go figure out how to organize on how to build it. And that would, uh, some organizations would be viewed as a demotion. You know, not at Amazon. It's like, hey, here's this very promising idea. Let's figure out how we can organize around it to, you know, to execute on this really quickly and de deliver value for customers. Even though I was managing 500 people before and I've got a team of five, that's great. Like now I'm in control. I can move fast. And eventually it's going to be a billion dollar business. I get to build another 500 or 5,000 person or to go, you know, go do this. So you don't get extra points for headcount on how many people you manage. It does seem like Amazon does a great job of aligning those incentives because it's hard for me to even imagine an executive that wouldn't try to keep one foot in and one foot out. 
you know, I'm going to manage the Skunk Works team, but I am also the SVP of such and such. I mean, how did you guys manage that? Well, Dave Limp has a great quote. He says, the best way to fail at inventing something is to make it someone's part-time job. Dave Limp was, he's the senior vice president for Amazon's devices business. And, you know, time and time again, a great example is when we wanted to move into digital media, so books, music, and video, the logical thing would be, well, just take the experts who are working in physical books, music, and video, where it's the same vendors, there's already a business thing that they know that to say, well, go do digital and do your day job. What happens is that it would digital would always be number eight or nine on their priority list. And, you know, rightfully so, they, if they're, they would say, well, these are bigger things in the current business because it's bigger. So it would never get done. There are some cases in digital where there are fundamental differences, even where they're at odds with the physical business. So that what Jeff Bezos did is, yeah, Steve Kessel, who was running Amazon's largest business, essentially moved to Amazon's smallest business. Yeah, and then said, go figure out how to do digital. And he brought along Bill Carr, my colleague, who was the second person in that digital group, to go build, to become a very large digital books, a digital music and digital video business. That would not have happened if Steve and Bill also had to juggle what was really making Amazon tick and paying all the bills at that time. So there was no magic. We just realized, well, things weren't going well. Single-threaded leadership was really the determining factor on, you know, why it was going well. And it took us a while to realize that. You know, we didn't start out from day one knowing that. You know, eventually we came to that conclusion. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out. Click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. Go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs the hiring platform for remote-first companies. There's one element of the book that I think has maybe the most promise. Most of our listeners have less than $5 million in revenue every year. And one of the things I really have struggled to implement is KPIs across the company and scorecards. And what I've read in your book is one of the most promising solutions I've come across, which is making hypotheses or the way I interpret it is making hypotheses and judging inputs or scoring inputs rather than um, results. Wondering if you can help us to wrap our heads around what this looks like and how we might implement it in our businesses. So input metrics are things, our activities are things that if, if you do them right, they will yield the desired results in your output metrics like revenue, cash generated, 
NPS, new, you know, net promoter score or customer satisfaction score. So the fundamental difference between input and output metrics are you can forecast and monitor output metrics, but you can't directly control them a reasonable time horizon. You can do things to juice revenue for the end of the month, but those things end up usually hurting you and you're in a deeper hole than you were when you start the next month. And we did that too. Hey, we're, we need to hit our quarterly numbers. Like, what can we do? But we realized, you know, it was probably around the 2000, 2001 timeframe that the more focus you put on input metrics, you understand the mapping between the sets of activities you need to do as an organization to drive your results. So growth can hide a lot of errors and you can take credit for a lot of your activities when the business is just growing 30 or 40 or 50 or 100% year over year. Hey, let's go build this. Great idea. Let's try it. Let's grow companies. Like you can give credit to the wrong people if the economy is going good or if a category is juicing. One of the things I've noticed, Colin, is when I put employees in charge of like category revenue, sometimes they can get a sense of anxiety because they're not exactly sure where the levers are. And yeah. what I interpreted you're saying is like here, we are going to agree upon the levers and we are going to focus on those instead. But they're not necessarily always going to be connected to the outputs you're seeking, right? You're, you have to make a hypothesis at, at a point. You have to make a hypothesis, then you have to build the instrumentation in your business to go gather that data. And then you have to look at the link to make sure it's true. You know, sometimes that input metric will be wrong. It'll either be too high level. So there isn't really a correlation between that input and output metrics. You need to decompose it or, you know, tweak the metric definition. We give an example of just selection. You know, we started with the brain dead, just add more stuff to the catalog. And eventually it turned, after more than a year of experimentation, it turned up uh, to be what we call demand-weighted in-stock, which meant you would look at the page views we were getting for products. So, you know, it's not just the number of items, it's weighted to what customers were looking at. And it had to be in stock and then, you know, ready to ship via a method like Prime. So we had to have it in the right place. And so you get category managers to focus on driving that. What that does, it's first of all, it's a customer-facing metric. So the more you drive that metric up, the more value you're driving for customers because customers, they come to the site and what they're looking at, it's ready to buy. You you also have the price and how quickly you can get to them. Those are things that you can focus on and you can actually come up with initiatives. You can measure those initiatives. You can say, did we increase demand-weighted in stock? Did we reduce the click-to-deliver timeframe? And eventually it is going to yield an increase in, in revenue and you know, new customers and customer satisfaction. Sometimes that there's a time lag there. We've also found that companies and organizations that focus on input metrics, they're actually more control, in control of their business. So when things start to go south a bit, you can say, well, here's why. We were a little sloppy here on our prices or this geography was a little different. But if you're just looking at the outputs, you're kind of looking at a machine that's or a process that spits out outputs. And then you're trying to guess, well, what do we need to do next? Companies that have really instrumented and mapped their input metrics to the output metrics, they just have the ability to know what to do next, how to measure. They're not always right, by the way, because building things and releasing it to customers, there's inherent uncertainty and risk in there. But you can measure whether it's working and whether you, your input metrics have actually changed. So once you do it, it's a much more liberating position to be in because you know, it'd be hard to try to drive a business where you weren't sure of what the fundamental 
input metrics were that made the business tick. Well, upon reading it, a couple of things, why aren't more businesses doing this? Or, you know, we even have all, on the other side, when you're doing results metrics, there's all these refinements that don't quite seem to work, like countervailing KPIs and stuff like, well, you're allowed to, we want you to reach this, but you're not allowed to do these five things. And so it sounds like you guys are really decided that you were going to track habits or organizational habits. But where does that line fall? Like a common small business habit or result would be like, say, a daily leads, say for a services or consulting company. What would be an input metric that we could track instead of like, hey, we want you to achieve 20 quality leads every week? Well, you know, if it's for something like a sales group, you can measure the sales activity. The way that we would do something like this is if we look at a metric, you ask, well, what do we need to do to drive this metric in the right direction? It could be up or down, depending on the metric. And you come up with that list of activities and you just recursively ask, well, what do we need to do to drive this one in the right direction? And once you get to the bare metal where it's kind of the activity itself, those tend to be your input metrics. And that is one way to figure out what your input metrics are. Another way is you can just map the customer journey for whatever your business happens to be. You know, from the first time customers hear about us, what happens to that customer journey along the way? And then you have some way to measure whether, well, this is good. Was it a good or bad interaction? And if it's bad, how do we make it better? If it's good, how do we do more of it? You know, so those are two ways in or, you know, where you can identify your input metrics. Another one is, you know, figure out what your flywheel is, where if you just keep doing these things day in and day out, you're going to grow your business. Those are things that you can, one, you have control over, two, you have to measure them. Sometimes the reason why people focus on output metrics is because that's what all they can measure. You know, that, that's kind of the, the report. So it's, it's, it's almost sounds like a tautology, but if your BI system only measures output metrics, that's the only thing you can look at. Sometimes it takes work to go instrument, well, how long did customers have to wait in order to talk to someone, you know, what was the actual click to deliver time? Building that instrumentation, it does take time and it's effort. And in patience, you say, yeah, but we have a revenue number to hit. And this is the difference between, you know, a longer term thinking approach. Well, a lot of times your revenue is already locked for the short term, you know, no matter what you do, but that it's still locked. So you want to look at how do we build an enduring, very large business? What are the processes and the instrumentation we need to have to have in place in order to get there. This is another case where slowing down a bit actually gets you to your end goal faster. A couple of final questions for you. I know you've spent a lot of time with us and we really appreciate it. You have this um, quiver now you're taking out into the world and you're applying it to other businesses. I'm curious if some things have struck you or surprised you in terms of what's the most powerful that people are implementing, number one. And then number two, one is inspired to identify what are those core principles to your business. And they're not always going to line up with Amazon's, as you mentioned. Are there principles that your clients have come up with that are uniquely powerful that you found inspiring? I don't know if this is going to answer your question. You mentioned that a lot of your listeners, $5 million and under so small organizations. One is that what we found that those organizations who are growing fast and essentially are on top of it those are ones that really have codified their leadership principles because that's probably about the time where you need to take the secret sauce of the founders of that whatever decision-making process they have and data that they look at. You need to encode that 
into a set of principles that the next 50 people or 100 people at your organization can use to make decisions when the founders aren't in the room. So the more you can do to codify that, and the leadership principles are different. We do not encourage people just to copy Amazon's. That won't work. You have to figure out what makes you as an organization special. So as you know, said, look, what I've been inspired by is organizations who've done that and have just some you know, pretty cool principles or frameworks, core values, leadership principles, you know, same thing, interchangeable terms. But then the second thing is, as if you're a young organization, you know, if you have five people, let's say, and you're going to go to 20 people by the end of the year, you need a data-driven process to go attract those 15 additional people because you want to make sure that those people are going to reinforce what culture you have. Otherwise, they, they will change it. So when we look at organizations who are saying, yeah, it just wasn't like it was a year ago. I don't know what happened. First question I ask is, well, show me what your core values are, leadership principles. And some don't have them. And like, well, you need to get those and define those. And then the second question is, tell me about how you interview and attract people. And if you don't have that interview process where you're attracting people to reinforce who you are, you're going to make inconsistent decisions. You're, you get 15 new people, you had five existing employees, your company is fundamentally different then because they'll bring whatever culture or values from their other organization. So those are simple things. But you know what I've been inspired by a lot is some of that, the core values and just unique ways in which companies view the world and make decisions. I think it's kind of cool. And I feel lucky to talk with founders and CEOs of organizations large and small about here's what's special about how we do business. You've seen handfuls of founders and ostensibly hundreds of people internally to Amazon create some of the world's most recognizable products or bring things from nothing to something. What is it that those projects or people seem to have in common across the board to you? Well, at Amazon, it's they just embodied the leadership principles. That is what we found that the people who were most successful at Amazon in building big things that deliver lots of value for customers were the leaders who embodied the leadership principles the most. Our hiring process, not surprisingly, is heavily weighted to what have these people done in their past career and do they embody the leadership principles and do we think they'll be a good fit? So that is the single biggest thing. It's not that they're smarter than everyone else. They work harder. You know, plenty of companies have smart people who work hard, but it's at Amazon, at least, it was the people who embodied the leadership principles the most tended to be in those senior positions and be able to build large businesses. Final question, Colin. It must be a cool feeling to have people like me reading and thousands of others reading your book and just being really inspired by it. I was in Barcelona in a cafe, just being kind of blown away and inspired. What was something that was maybe inspiring or revelatory to you in the process of sitting down and writing this book? Things that I had forgotten. Jeff Bezos in his, I think it was a 2015 shareholder letter, said, we want to build an invention machine at Amazon that takes advantage of the lar- our large scale, but the entrepreneurial spirit of you know startups. He didn't really define what that was. And so that's what we just um, sought to really uh, write about. And because that is the one thing that all of Amazon's business have in common, they were built using this invention machine. So it was kind of fun going back into history. And Bill and I were lucky enough to have been in the room at different sides of the table while these, not only these businesses, but these processes were being created. And 
you know, we wanted to explain them in a way that was challenging because which there are a lot of story people say, well, storytelling is the best way to do it. But we also went into nuts and bolts thing where someone could read a book and part of the book and go, actually go do something with it. And so it's a surprising and an, I guess inspiring thing was some of the most popular topics are around metrics. Like I thought, should we put a metrics chapter in here? Are people even interested in metrics? I'm glad we did because that is one of the most popular chapters that people ask about. And just the operating cadence too. These things all have to fit together. So you can't really just copy one process from one company and one from another and like expect it all to fit. So you need to be inspired. We just felt we wanted to have some of these advances in management science is how we view them out in public dialogue and, you know, for people to study. And we're not out to convince people that they should do this, but we wanted to give them the information so they can make their own decision. Well, the details are... They're inspiring too, especially when you can see them in the relief of the polarity of like the concept that they came from the principles. So appreciate you putting out the paper. Probably uh, all of us appreciate it, except for the product group over at PowerPoint. I'm assuming you're going to uh, <laughs> create a, a lot of uh, founders who are inspired by your methods and uh, examples. So thanks for writing the book, Colin, and thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks, Dan. That was a pleasure to chat with you today. Big shout out to Colin Breyer for coming by the show. And I super recommend the book, Working Backwards as a shakeup to the way you might be thinking about innovating in your business. It certainly gives you a lot to think about. I read it over the course of one day and it just got me super inspired. It was like one of those weekend days where you walk around, you pick up a good book, you start taking notes, you tell your friends about it. And so thankful that he was willing to come on the show to talk about it. If you have thoughts about the book or anything else on, about the TMBA podcast, send me an email. Dan at tropicalmba.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. We'll see you then. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.